kind of want to go, maybe pray, support that way, and just kind of witness what happens here, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. And there's also plenty of uh, opportunity to prepare food and clothing beforehand. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 49. The Lord says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and, uh, and rise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Our New Testament reading and sermon passage comes from Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. It's good to see visiting faces. It's that time of year when we have many folks uh, coming in from out of town, and so we're so glad that you're here. If you're visiting from the area, an extra warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're checking out Cornerstone uh, during this Advent season. And then also those of you who are watching online, a warm welcome. We're glad that you're here. So my name's Jamie, one of the pastors here. And we're in this series. Uh, we're looking at some of the Advent readings and passages from the Gospel of Luke. Now today, that middle paragraph that was up, or if you have a bulletin, um, it's familiar, particularly if you memorized it from the King James Version. Now dismiss your servant in peace, my eyes have seen the Savior. Uh, some of you know that in the Latin that's called the Nunc Dimittis, 
And particularly if you grew up in a Lutheran tradition, uh, you're like, oh yeah, that's what was read after the Eucharist. Or if you grew up in a, if you will, a, a more high church tradition like Anglican or Catholic, um, that's what was used to conclude a service. Now today, we're not focusing on that line. <laughs> we're gonna look at uh, that last paragraph and it's rather unfamiliar. Look at verse 34. Behold, the child, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So today we're going to look at that sentence. We're going to ask three questions. Uh, what does that sentence mean? Why does it matter? And then what are we supposed to do with it? And so conveniently it makes three points for a three-point sermon. And so the first point is, well, what does this sentence mean? Division. Jesus has come to bring division. Uh, why does this matter? Decision. Jesus being God demands decision. And then that third, what are we supposed to do? Uh, devotion. Following Jesus means a whole devotion. And what we want to see is Jesus is the one who took the fall for us. And so now we are to rise in him. Before we go further, would you please pray with me? God, we pray because we need you, but also we pray because without you, uh, this whole exercise, this what we're doing is nonsense. Uh, people, good people, gathering to hear the words of a guy standing in a pulpit. But if those words are not your words, this is a vain exercise. So Holy Spirit, would you make my words to be your words, but also would you open the ears of those who now listen so that we would see Jesus, the King of Kings, and that we would see how he laid down his life for us. Lord Jesus, would you be glorified? We pray in your name. Amen. So let's look at that first question. What does this sentence mean? And it says, Jesus has come to bring division. So yes, he is the Savior. Look at verse 30. My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. But also we see that Jesus is what we call a divider. Look at verse 34. Jesus is destined for the fall of some and the rise of others. Now let's look at some of the language there. That word for destined means solemnly appointed. In other words, uh, this is what your purpose is going to be in life. And then that word for fall, it's not just like I stumbled down. It's a word that means utter collapse. Um, that you've crashed to the floor. And then that word for rise, I'm going to say it in the Greek, is anastasis. Some of you are now recognizing that. That means recovery from death. It's the same word that's used for resurrection. So I want to put this into perspective. What's going on is these are strong terms, and there really is no middle ground here. What we're seeing is Jesus is one who comes to bring some down to destruction, but then others he's bringing up to life. And so what we're seeing is, is Jesus separates rather than brings together. Now, we should not be surprised by that. For Jesus himself says those exact words in Luke chapter 12. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? That's the Christmas message. He says, no, I tell you, rather division. Now, those are hard words. Now, I want to add here, at this point, some might be saying, you know what, that's what I don't like about religion. Perhaps you've heard that before. I don't like this about religion because religion divides, it does not unify. Now, I put before you that is true. 
It is true that all religions divide, even Christianity. And so we need to ask the question, well, why, why is that? You see, religion declares that some are right, they're in, if you will, and others are wrong, they're out. And so in religion, you're judged upon a moral code, you're judged upon ritual, you're judged beyond, uh, upon a belief system. And if you conform, then you are accepted. If you fail to conform, then you're not accepted. Now, again, someone might be saying, exactly. <laughs> Religion is way too judgmental. Um, it's too intolerant. Yet, I'm going to put before you that even the non-religious judge those who hold to such religious beliefs. What are some of the things that perhaps you hear? Um, if you believe that stuff, then you're simple, you're old-fashioned, you're traditional, you are simply, you're wrong. Now, I want to put before you that when a person begins to talk that way, do you see what they're doing? They, too, are now excluding. And so when a person says that, the very thing that they are judging, exclusivity, intolerance, they're now doing. See, we need to go back even a further step. All of us believe that our system of belief is right. Let me say that again. All of us have this my system of belief is right. In other words, um, if something is wrong, you want to be able to identify that. Let me put it even differently. Someone, something would be wrong if you even didn't believe that your system was right. Your system of belief is what helps make sense of a chaotic world. It's even, if you will, part of the survival instinct. It's what orients and guides you in this complex world. And so if you have a system of belief that's not protecting you, then you're gonna be like, well, what am I doing? And so all of us have a system of belief, and by general means, we think that it's something that actually is good because it's protecting us and helping us to live. Now, when one violates or criticizes that belief system, we become angry, we threaten, we judge, we exclude. Because they are systems of belief, even a non-religion acts like a religion. Follow with me. If you have a person who says, you know what, I'm agnostic, you just can't know if there's a God. Even that system of saying, I'm agnostic, is actually a system that you're declaring that is a system that's better than other systems. Because when a person says, you know what, I'm agnostic, they're trying to have like this middle ground. I don't want to be like acknowledging that there's a God, because that makes me a theist. But I don't want to deny that there's a God, that makes me an atheist. But even if you say, you know what, I'm kind of in between, you're basically saying my way is the right way, and you're judging others who don't believe that way. And so all of us are judging, whether religious or non-religious. And so going back to the text, the person might be saying, okay, I follow what you're saying. Jesus, he comes and he brings division, but apparently even non-religion, every religion brings division. So what makes Jesus so very special? While all religions divide, and they do, only Jesus Christ is able to unite. And that brings us to our second point. Why does this all matter? Jesus being God demands a decision. And so we need to unpack that from the text. Let's ask the question, what's going on in this text? 
here uh, Joseph, Mary, they come, they bring baby Jesus to the temple, and this man kind of whisks Jesus into his arms, and he not only blesses this Jesus, but he says basically, you know what? Your baby's the divine king. He's the king that's been promised. In fact, he is God himself. Let's dig in. Look at verse 21. Mary names the baby Jesus, which means God saves, as commanded by the angel back in chapter 1, verse 31. He's circumcised on the eighth day according to the Jewish law. That's a covenantal ritual that says this person now belongs to God. Verses 22 through 24, he references this time of purification. Again, this is part of the Jewish law. Forty days after the boy is born, the couple is to go to the temple, and there they offer sacrifices of purification. In other words, Mary is unclean because of the shedding of blood, and the sacrifice is the reminder that someone or something needs to make her clean. But then also the sacrifice, listen, is redeeming the Lord Jesus. He's fulfilling the law. Back in Exodus, God brings his people out of Egypt, and there's this thing called the Passover. And the Passover is where destroying angel. We don't know if it's a plague, COVID, beyond, I don't know. But the firstborn are all killed who do not have the blood of the lamb over the lintel, over their door. And so this 40 days after the birth of a son, you go and you make a sacrifice. It's to remember that your son was redeemed by another. And so you offer this sacrifice as a remembrance that God is you know, basically saving this child from a death that he deserves. So that's what's going on in verses 22 through 24. Jesus is fulfilling the law, if you will. Then look at verse 25. We're introduced to this guy named Simeon. We don't know much about him. We presume that he's old because this picture of waiting to see the Christ until he dies. But what we do know is that, look, he's righteous and devout. He's not a fake He's recognized as a godly man. And what is he doing? He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word for consolation simply means comfort. But in this context, it means that he's waiting for divine deliverance. So not just like a good nap or like, you know, a good meal, that type of comfort. He's looking for the ultimate comfort. He's like, God, when are you going to bring healing to God's people, Israel? Let's continue. Look at how verse 25 continues and into verse 26. The Spirit of God moves in Simeon, and it says, your eyes will see the Messiah before you die. And then verses 27 through 28, in the Spirit, Simeon takes Jesus. Can you imagine, you know, being Mary and this guy coming along and taking your baby away? <laughs> and, uh, but he takes the baby and he blesses God. Now, that's interesting. He's not blessing the child. He's not even blessing the parents. He's blessing God, and what does he say? It's like this canticle, this song of thanksgiving. Verses 29 through 32. Now I can be dismissed. Dismi dis uh, dismiss me in peace, for I have seen your salvation with my own eyes. I see the Savior for the world, both Jew and Gentile. I can now die. Now, someone might say, you know what, that's very moving. But how does that show that Jesus is God? Even more, how does it show that I must have a decision about Jesus? 
We've already seen that all religion divides, but only Jesus is able to unite. How do we see Jesus doing that from the text? Let's continue. Look at verse 33. While Mary and Joseph are marveling at the words of Simeon, he now speaks words concerning the Son, Jesus. Verse 34, Simeon blesses them. We don't know what he says, but then here's the sentence that we're focusing on. This child is appointed for the rising and falling of many. In fact, he will be a sign that is opposed. That's an awkward sentence, and so what does it mean? Let's break it down. What's a sign? A sign is something that actually points to something else. And so, what is Jesus, or who is Jesus pointing to? Well, we find out later in the life of Jesus, he says, you know what? If you see me, you see the Father. Jesus points to the Father. Let me put it differently. Jesus points to God because Jesus is God. So he is a sign of who God is, but then he's opposed. He's spoken against. And what we're seeing now is here is this child who is God, but he's going to be rejected. And we see how God is rejected, even to the point that they kill him upon a cross and Calvary. Continuing, look at verse 35. We see Jesus has power to reveal all that is about you, both inside and outside. And what that's saying is Jesus is both God and judge. Now, what's interesting here is you're naked before God. (laughs) You have nothing to hide. You are naked before God. And this question is now being asked, the God who can judge you inside and out, are you going to trust him to save you? Or somehow are you going to try to save yourself? He who sees right through you, now the question is, what are you going to do? You must make a decision about who this God is, and it starts with, who is this baby? Now, as we said before, we all believe and live by a belief system. That's normal. It's, we all do it. And we all strive to be accepted by those systems that we believe. We all have laws by which we're trying to do. The problem is, is those systems fail, particularly when they're human systems, do they not? And what that means is we can set up a system, but it's still faulty because it's our system and it's not God's system. And so these human systems fall, but then also you look at God's system, which is perfect, and we fail that because it is impossible to do God's law perfectly because we are imperfect. God's law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love others as yourself. Friends, did you do that this morning? We wrestle with this. And so here is this system. Our own systems fall short, and God's system we just can't do, so what do we do? Most often what we do is we just ignore it, and we say, well, I'll just try my best, and I hope that is enough. The problem is, is you cannot ignore God or His law. God demands perfection because He Himself is perfect. It's not because He's an ogre. It's not because He's mean. It's because He is holy. And this holy law is written upon our hearts because we are created in His image. Consider with me how that law is written upon our hearts. We know what justice is. We know what injustice is. 
it's universally understood because think about this. When you are hurt by another, you're experiencing injustice. When someone hurts you with their greed, when someone hurts you with their lust, when someone hurts you with their selfishness, you feel it because you are imprinted with God's standard and you know when you've been hurt, but there's more. We do the same thing. We hurt others with our selfishness, with our lust, with our greed. Daily we break this law. And so we're beginning to see, well, how does Jesus come to save us? Jesus comes to save us both as the law keeper and also as the law payer. As the law keeper, Jesus kept the law of God perfectly. We even see some of the details of this in the passage today. Even from a baby from birth, here he is fulfilling the law of God, circumcised on the eighth day. Sacrifices made on his behalf on the 40th day. He does all of that for us. And so when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we call that faith. And what that faith part is, Jesus, you did what I could not do. You kept the law on my behalf. And so when I'm believing in you, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting that you did what I could not do, would not do, and did not do. But Jesus, you also are the law payer. He took the penalty for breaking the law. What is the penalty of breaking God's law? It's death. Sin separates us from God. What is that for all eternity? We call that hell. And at the cross, Jesus paid that penalty in full. When he says, it is finished, he's saying there's no more to add what he has done. The law and its punishment is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And what that means is when you have faith in Christ, Jesus, not only did you live the law, you paid the law, and now I am accepted by God. Let's put this into context. All religions, all religions say, you know what, if you break the law, you're not accepted. So what do they say? Strive harder, do more, be better in order to be accepted. Christianity is completely different than all other religions, and we need to hear this. Christianity literally is the only religion that says, you know what, yes, you break the law, and it is impossible to make yourself acceptable. Only God can make you acceptable. All other religions are try harder, and Christianity says, you can't do it. You will always fall short, and that's why Jesus has come to do what we can't do. He lived the perfect life. He paid the penalty perfectly for us. And so, yes, let's be very honest. Jesus and Christianity is super exclusive, if you will. Jesus himself says, no one comes to the Father except by me. Those are highly divisive words. And so, yes, Jesus is exclusive, but apart from all other religions, Jesus is inclusive. Every religion has some sort of caste, those who are in, those who are out. Christianity says Jesus died for both Jew and Gentile. Jesus died for those of high income, low income. Jesus died for all colors of humanity. Jesus died for all educational standards. Jesus died for all those, whether they're in Lake Country or downtown Milwaukee. Jesus died for everyone. How inclusive is that? There is no other religion like that. And so here, 
Do you trust Jesus as God to save you? There must be a decision. There is no middle ground. When we look at the New Testament and how people interact with Jesus, there's never an in-between. It's remarkable. People either love him or hate him. (laughs) They're either trying to worship him or kill him. And we see that so early on, uh, we know the story of the Magi, the three wise men. You know that. What do they come to do? To worship the newborn king. Herod, who is the king at that time over Jerusalem and Judea, he says there can only be one king. And so what does he do? The slaughter of the innocents. Either you love him or you hate him. There is no in-between. Now today I find very few people say I hate Jesus. Instead they say things like this. I just don't know about Jesus. Or I grew up with Jesus, but, you know, I'm trying to kind of figure out who he is now. Um, I grew up in the church. I learned a lot about Jesus, but I'm not certain I really follow him. Uh, I appreciate the example of Jesus, and so I, I got that going for me. I want to put before you, when you talk that way about Jesus, it's like a supper club. You ever been to a supper club and you go there and they have like the relish tray, and like only in Wisconsin type of thing, but you have like the relish tray, there's like literally a dozen t- types of relish, like who does that? But Wisconsin we do and it's wonderful. And so we kind of treat Jesus, I'm not trying to be mean, but that's what we do. Jesus is like a relish tray. I'm just going to pick the kind I like. And so what we do is we pick and choose what we like and we're trying to sit in between Jesus being God or not. And when we look at this text, there is no in-between with Jesus. Look, he is God and judge. He is divider and uniter. There can be no indifference. There has to be a decision. Will you follow him? And so what does it look like to follow Jesus? And that's our third point. What do we do with this? Following Jesus means a whole devotion to him. Now, we see this as the Gospels unpack, um, as Jesus begins his, you know, earthly ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's calling his disciples to himself. Uh, One of the accounts that I like, some of you know I was a fish biologist by training, and uh, some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. James and John, in following Jesus, the first thing that they, they do is it says they left everything. They left everything, and the notes are very clear. It says even their nets. They left everything to follow Jesus. That's what it means. Whole devotion means following him with, without abandon. Jesus says later in the Gospels, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. What's he saying? Devote your whole life to him. That you would even be willing to die for him. Now, in the moment I say that, someone might say, you know what, that's crazy commitment. Uh, I can like Jesus a little bit, but I'm not sure I'm going to die for Jesus. And I say, it is crazy commitment to be willing to die for something. It is crazy commitment to be willing to die for someone. You see, this is more than being a sports fan. This is more than Packers. This is more than a political party. This is more than a social issue. What this is saying is your very life. And what would ever push you to such a devotion? Listen, it's Jesus' whole devotion to you. 
Jesus was never indifferent in this world, and he was never indifferent, especially toward you. <laughs> Jesus was willing to die for something. He was willing to give his very life for something. And what is that? It's you. Jesus, he took the fall upon himself, the very curse, so that you would be free from it and have life and rise in him. Now, again, someone might say, okay, preacher, you're kind of motivated. You're a little bit hyper today, uh, but it sounds churchy. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Look at verse 35. These words to Simeon, or Simeon to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Again, these are hard words. What does that mean? In the Greek, there's two words for sword. One, uh, the word is like a small sword, kind of like an ornamental sword, and then the other one is like the battle sword. The way I do the analogy today is like um, what we call like the honor guard rifle, like you see the guys who march in the parades versus the assault rifle that you use in actual combat, all right? What sword is being used here? It's the assault rifle. What Simeon is saying to Mary is, yes, you got a baby, <laughs> and he's a very special son, and yes, you are his mom, but he's the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the God above all. And what he's saying is, if you're going to follow even your son, you must allow him to pierce you. You must allow him to reveal you, to change you that you're not your own, but that you belong to Jesus. He is the center of your life. In fact, he is all of your life. Now, why would you want Jesus to pierce you? Why would you want Jesus to challenge you? Why would you even want Jesus to change you? Let's look at the text. Simeon to Mary, a sword's gonna pierce you. Who is the one who was pierced for our transgressions? The Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that was due for our sin was placed upon him, and he brings us peace. Why would you want to be pierced? Because he was pierced for us. Simeon to Mary, you will be divided. At the cross, Jesus cries out, my, my God, my God, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was divided by the, from the Father at the cross. Why would you ever want to be divided? Because Jesus was divided for you. Our sin is what separates us. Our sin is what causes rejection. Jesus is the one who takes that separation. He takes that rejection so that we are united and accepted. Friends, love to that degree, it's not just inspirational. It's not just instructional. This is life-giving. And so when we see this, Jesus is now our whole life because he devoted his whole life to us. That's why we follow him. That's why we follow him. Some of us are scared because we know that if we actually say, I'm going to follow Jesus this way, I don't want to be a fake. And there's so much fake in this world today. You know that. So where do we start? How do you have this type of devotion? It starts with repentance. If you are churched, 
I'm going to speak to you very directly. If you call yourself a Christian, when are you the best Christian? I find that I'm the best Christian when Jesus is showing me how messed up I am. (laughs) Not how good I am. Listen, but how messed up I am. You see, when I'm shown to be such a big mess, there I'm not judging others. I'm not looking at their hypocrisy. I'm looking at my own. When I'm seeing what a big mess, mess I am, there's no pretense. I'm not trying to look good. I'm not trying to keep the face of religion. I'm not being fake. When I'm shown to be such a big mess, there I'm clinging to Jesus because he's all I got. (laughs) And in that moment, that is what devotion looks like because I'm so needy. There I'm so happy because I know that I'm only accepted because of God's mercy and his love and his kindness. It's there that I see that I'm pierced because of my sin. I see my big mess but there I see that I'm loved because Jesus was pierced for my big mess. Where does it start with this devotion? It starts with repentance. God, I'm a big mess. Can you say that today? Then where does that devotion go? It flows out and it's saying, Jesus, I want to let you in not just into some places of my life, but all places. And that's kind of scary. Yet, Jesus, I'm going to trust you because you took the fall so that I can have life, and that life is an abundant life, an eternal life. If you notice, um, uh, Pastor Smith and I sometimes joke, do people even pay attention to the titles of the sermons? Probably not. But uh, (laughs) today's is the fulfillment of Emmanuel. And it's very purposeful. Here is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And what is his fulfillment? He came to fulfill a promise to bring God's people back to himself. God says, I will dwell again with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And when Jesus comes back, he does not come back just as a little bit or partial and maybe later. He says, I'm coming back and I'm going to dwell and you're going to follow and it's not going to be just a little, it's going to be all. Are you willing to do that today? Jesus was appointed for the fall and rising of many. What does that mean? Division of people. Why does it matter? A decision of heart. But what do we do? We devote ourselves wholly to Jesus because he was slain and separated for you. We can't live apart from him. He is my everything. I am now devoted to him. Jesus took the fall for you so that you might rise in him. Would you pray with me? God, perhaps there are those here who for the first time they're trying to figure out who Jesus is and they want to know, what do I do? Perhaps there are those here who grew up in the church and then have walked away. They're wondering what to do. There are those here who perhaps are living in addiction or hiding something. And they're like, I know I'm not devoted to you. What do I do? God, it first starts with this simple prayer. God, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've been trying to be a king or a queen, but you are the true king. And next, it's praying, God, I repent of my sin. I turn from myself and I turn to you. I turn from my selfishness and I turn to you, Lord Jesus. And then the third thing is, Jesus, I receive what you did on the cross. 
that you did what I cannot do. You paid the price of my sin, but also, Jesus, you lived the law I could not live. I am now completely accepted. Jesus, if someone has prayed that prayer, perhaps for the first time or renewing that prayer, would you give them assurance that when a person says Jesus is Lord, they are born again? 